fortunately we did have, we both had full-time jobs so we could afford the place. Mm. And it was right. It was in 2007. So the market, the bubble, like it, it started to kind of go down and we thought, oh, well, it's also a good time, right? It went, it's going down a little bit. And then we bought and then it just crashed. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. And I bet you're exposed to investment risk right now. To reduce it, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist I've made specifically for you, my podcast listeners, based on the lessons I've learned from all of my Yes. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, J Money, J Money, J Money, J Money. Are you ready to rock? <laughs> yeah, I'm a risk taker. I mean, you made me feel good. I love it. <laughs> exactly. That's what it's all about, man. You can't, yeah, make, can't make it happen without taking the risk. Yes, sir. But let, let me introduce you to the audience. Jay Money is an award-winning personal finance blogger, daddy of three, and mega fan of the personal finance space online. He's founded a number of popular projects over the past decade, including Budgets Are Sexy and Rockstar Finance, and is now curating the best articles from around the community at All Star Money, a project in partnership with The Motley Fool. You can find his entire story at jmoney.biz slash story. Jay, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Oh, yes, yes. Well, I'm 41 years old. Uh, I live right outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia in the U.S. of A. Uh, I have three little boys, as you mentioned there. Never really been into money or entrepreneurship or, I guess, risk-taking in general most of my life kind of stumbled across all of this stuff actually by going through my worst investment, opened up the doors and my eyes into a whole other world, good stuff and bad stuff, of course. But yeah, I'm just kind of one of those guys that goes with the flow. I uh, grew up in the military family, so I traveled around, met a lot of people, and I just kind of just go with it until something changes me one way or the other. And over the past, I'd say 15 years, I've been better about crafting the ideal lifestyle and taking more control versus the first half of, of my life. Mm. And maybe there's a couple quick things I'd like to ask you about before we get into the, the big question. And the first one we kind of talked about before we turn on the microphone, which is what is your method of acquiring knowledge in this you know, space that you know so much about now? Yeah, I mean, really, it's the the personal finance blog community. You know, I stumbled across it. I was looking for a budget. And I just, you know, Googled what, you know, how do you budget or something silly like that about 13 years ago. And I came across all of these, there are websites, but there are just people talking about their own money. They're like, oh, here's how much I budget for, you know, cars or food in real life numbers. And I was blown away by the transparency and particularly when people would say, hey, here's my net worth. Here's what's in my savings. Here's my debt. And I'd never seen real life money before. And so that just like, I was glued. And because there were people talking normally, they weren't experts, quote, they weren't websites trying to sell me anything. It was just people, you know, it's a diary, it's a journal. And I just got hooked. And that actually, because of the people made me want to pay attention more. And they kind of tricked me into learning. 
and making my own money better, right? Because they were like storytelling and I was learning by accident. And then a few months after reading, I'm like, oh, I'm going to tell my story. And I started the blog and, you know, I was misspelling and cursing. I mean, I just, it was just, a, I was blurting stuff out. So from other people and then my own audience commenting and emailing me and teaching me is a really cool ecosystem online. Yeah, it's, it's amazing what you can learn nowadays. I mean, I think about when I started in the industry, it was 1993 and I was in Thailand when I started. So the, mm. the internet didn't really exist in any way that I could use it. And, you know, we had bookstores, but there weren't even that many books. So the idea of acquiring knowledge was, you know, such a, a hard task. Now, of course, nowadays it's the opposite. You're overloaded with information. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually, it's funny when you, when we started seeing this happen in, I don't know, five years ago or whatever that was, where all of a sudden the service of cutting out and focusing in to the most valuable information on the internet, all of a sudden became something you'd be willing to pay for when you're overloaded with information. Oh yeah. Oh, one of my favorite books is called Essentialism and it talks about that and it's, it's just, it changed your, yeah, there's so much now. Yeah. So you have a, a slew of other problems. Yeah. But the internet for me, that's really where I learned. And, and it's the internet, but it's also people one-on-one, -on -one, mm. you know, like the, the personal story and the personal connecting for me is, you know, really, really important. And you said one thing just when you were introducing yourself a little bit and you talked about kind of transforming the way that you you know, that work fits into your life and that maybe you could just explain what you meant by that. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of just going with the flow. And then when I had my worst mistake, which I guess I can hint was, was buying a house with no, no plan, no money, no really, I wasn't paying attention. I just, I just bought one. Right. And that kind of shifted me to do research. And when I kind of realized you can, I, I realized there's like two worlds is the world that's like normal. And like the, the path that everyone tells you, you know, like get married, buy a house, have kids, like there's that whole path. And then there's people that are just doing whatever the hell they want. And I realized like, there's no rules, like reading blogs. I'm like, oh my gosh, like people are just doing anything and there's no rules. There's no police saying, oh, you can't do that. You know? And so I'd already gone part of my life following the rules quote, when I realized there's another way to live. And so that's where I kind of started like restructuring my life. And I, I became good at blogging accidentally and that became my new career. So I like had this whole degree and then all of a sudden now I'm a blogger for a living, which is really so strange, you know, and when you build a blog, you're writing, but you're marketing and now you have income if you're advertising. So I accidentally became an entrepreneur and, and I had a small business, you know, that I would go on to sell later. And through mm. that, like, I'm like, oh, wow, you can just make money online, right? Like, this is crazy. What else can you do online? And so it just, it just, it is amazing what can happen all from, from a mistake, essentially. Mm. I mean, uh, that's a great lesson to all the listeners, including myself, is that there simply are no rules. And <laughs> when you realize that, it's like you've been in a cage with walls that actually don't exist. Yeah. And what's hard is that all the people you surround yourself like in normal life, like they are following rules, right? Most people do follow rules. Yep. And so it's hard when you're trying to like not do something that everyone around you, like friends, family, like when I remember my mom thinking like, you're going to like, you have a degree and you want to go write and just, just share like thoughts online. I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to do. It, like, it does take on that some, some courage to like do it and not fall back. But yeah, yeah. yeah. It's an right. interesting ride. Well, that's a challenge, I think, for, for all the listeners is to, to ask, you know, to tell yourself that there, there are no rules. You know, you're doing things 
because you're conforming, you're doing things because that's what you're supposed to do. You're doing things because we've been brought up to queue up and line up and we've been brought up to follow the rules and we've been brought up to do all those things, but you don't have to do that forever. That's right. You're right. Yep. That's it. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, sure. So as I alluded to earlier, my worst investment was buying a house. And at the time I was, you know, I had a steady job. I was engaged. I didn't have kids yet or anything, but I was kind of, like I mentioned before, I was kind of just checking off the things you're supposed to do. Like, okay, I'm engaged. All my friends were buying their first homes and everyone's like, that's like the next part of the plan. And so we actually initially went to just go rent because we were, I was moving in with my fiance and we were rent, looking for a one bedroom or two bedroom uh, apartment to rent. Got lost. Like we took a wrong turn and we stumbled across this, this townhouse and it was for sale. And we thought, oh, that's a nice looking townhouse, right? There was some like water nearby. And I'm like, oh, we should just call that number and just, just for fun. Like, let's just see what happens, you know? I'm totally not really expecting anything else. Cause again, we, we were initially trying to rent. And they said, oh, it's for sale. Why don't you come inside? The realtor, right? Good realtor answered right away. Within 30 minutes, we were inside. Like, that's a really good realtor. <laughs> You know, so you're talking, oh, you know, renting, stealing your money away, like, oh, just for $200 more, you could have a house, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, you know, and then in my back of my mind, right? Well, everyone's buying homes. All my friends are doing it, right? My family, everyone's are homeowners. And everything I know up to this point is that a home is, a, is an asset, right? Like it's an investment. That's what you're told the whole mm-hmm. time, right? And so to kind of long story short, within 48 hours, no money down. We bought a house, 350,000 on a whim, no budget. Fortunately, we did have, we both had full-time jobs so we could afford the place. Mm. And it was right. It was in 2007. So the market, the bubble, like it, it started to kind of go down and we thought, oh, well, it's also a good time, right? It went, it's going down a little bit. And then we bought, and then it just crashed. Right? <laughs> like As we all know what happened there. But really, like, it's not even the crashing. I guess there's two parts to why it's bad. Financially, it was horrible because the crash in our house went from 350 to, let's say, 270 within mm. months, right? That, so that, that obviously, you know, was not fun. But more than that was the emotional, like, I didn't realize what comes with owning a house. You know, like, it's a responsibility. It's maintenance. It's all these things that as a renter, you don't know or care or think about. And when you're buying a home, all you're thinking of is an investment. Everyone's doing it. It's the right thing. You forget about that mental thing. And by the way, all these people say, oh, rent and mortgage, just look at that number. And that's like the difference. Like they don't tell you maintenance costs and taxes. Like there's so much more. They don't compare properly, you know, and we're not good. Humans aren't good at doing it in our heads. So financially it was a bad decision. But, you know, as I mentioned, I came from a military background, so I'm used to moving every two years. And while in my head, I thought it might be good to settle down, like that's a whole huge change. You can't just buy a house every two years and sell, right? You'd be losing money left and right. So that is my worst investment. And, and kind of over the next 10 years, we lived in there probably for six or seven years, I want to say. We never, like we could always afford the house. So that part was fine, but it was just being tied and not enjoying it and then kind of realizing like, Hey, maybe homeownership isn't for everyone. And is that okay? Right. And then I became a financial blogger 
And so that's the big thing. How can you be a financial blogger? Like if you don't own a house, right? And I start <laughs> talking about renting and how much I miss renting. Eventually we rent out the house and I do go back to renting for three years and love it. Oh gosh, I love renting so much. And then, you know, then I became an accidental property owner or property manager, right? Now I'm dealing with other, I'm, I'm doing the stress of that. So there's a lot that, you know, as you can imagine, and most, you know, a lot of listeners are homeowners. So, you know, you know what the deal is. But the what about the home now? So we lived in it for, let's say seven years, rented it for two to three, and then we sold it in December in the winter. This was three or four years ago. We sold it and we were renting for probably two or three years. And I loved it. It was bliss and it was good. So, and we had to even pony up at, at closing to sell. This is 10 years after owning a home, which everyone says it goes up in value, right? Like you can't go wrong. We had to bring like 30,000 just to sell it, like just to, to like close on it, $30,000, something like that in cash, which obviously also stayed. Those are big but numbers. Yeah. When at that time. Big numbers. You know, what's funny is when we were at the closing table and they were saying congrats to the new owners of the home, right? Everyone gets congrats, but you really congrats the person that's selling it. And I'm like, Hey, like I actually get a congrats here. Like I'm, I got my freedom back. <laughs> so how did you feel when you signed that and you and your wife jumped in the it. car and left or. Oh, it was the best feeling. That was the best, like 30,000 I spent. Like it was beautiful, you know? And again, it's all mental. And, you know, I'm a very emotional person too. Like I always pay attention to the feelings versus numbers. And so that to me was a huge weight lifted off. And so we rented for a few more years. Ironically enough, I am back to owning a home. On your just, terms. On my terms, yes. But also now I'm married. Now I have three kids. And it was one of those things where like, we do want to settle for, like I'm out of the moving every two years thing. And we do want to settle. But my preference is still to rent. Like I'd, I'd literally rent for the rest of my life if I could. Like I yeah. just love the freedom of it. You know, but now the family voted and I got outvoted. So I'm realizing, <laughs> hey, I don't have to have my way all the time. I voiced my reasoning. I lost and that's fine. So I'm, I'm owning in a different way now. Now they could be sneaky and say, well, dad, why don't you rent our vacation home? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they could. Yes. So let's go through. Tell us, how would you list out the lessons that you learned from this? Uh, well, I guess lesson number one is you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. And it sounds like so easy to do, but you know, we're just so used to it. And number two, like I would say it's okay to rent, right? Like there's so many advantages to renting, like obviously the freedom part to a degree, but when, you know, when you have all those maintenance costs and the taxes and all this other stuff, like it it is a big chunk of money. It's not just mortgage versus rent. And so what a lot of my friends do, especially online that like to travel and stuff, they'll rent and whatever the difference was, they were, you know, let's say it's like a $500 difference between renting and owning they'll throw that $500 right into investments or, you know, let's say the stock market or index funds. And so like that, you know, an asset, what I realized too, an asset is supposed to bring you income, right? Like it's it's something you own that brings income and houses do not give you income houses unless it's the rental. If the home you live in, it's not bringing income, it's taking money from you. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's a whole debate and you're going to go on one side or the other. Is it an investment or is it not? Is there technically or not, but there's other ways to quote, have investments that isn't your house, right? You got stock market, you got all this other kind of stuff out there. So I say as long as, so what I learned is that I don't need to own a home in order to like be invested, right? There's other ways. And yeah, and, and there's no, and I think nowadays, I mean, at least I'm hoping that renting isn't as frowned upon 
like mm. it was maybe a decade ago. I feel like I, I'm sensing that more with like millennials and stuff too. Like there is a lot of more people with lifestyle design and traveling and stuff, you know, but still, we still hear like, oh, if you rent, like that means X, Y, Z, you know, and, and that's a shame because there's no shame in, you know, in renting. And one question I have is if, if this house was instead of 350, if the house yeah. that you stumbled upon and ended up buying was, I don't know, 200 or 180, mm-hmm. how would the, the price that you paid for that change the story? Well, I think if it was lower, I guess we still would have had the problem. I guess the two problems would have been the same. The emotional attachment is still the same regardless mm. of the price. Like you still have to maintain it. And if something breaks, you know, it's just that fear of like anything in my house can break and will, right? Everything will break at some point in your life yep. or the roof. And it's always like, it's not like a $20 thing. It's always like a 500 thing or a thousand thing, right? And especially if you're at the part where you're either living paycheck to paycheck or you're only, you know, you're like your first job. Right? Mm. Like I was at my first real career so I could afford it. But if something broke, like my emergency fund, let's say it was like two or $3,000, yep. right? And so now 10 years later and more money in the bank, like, and that's why I'm, it's easier for me to own now. I have the money to cover stuff mm. and, you know, I could pay the house off if I wanted to. So like there's more, that financial freedom definitely changes that. But even now, right, I have plenty of money and yet I still like anytime the faucet, something happens, the faucet or the toilet, actually during the winter, our heater, like we smelled gas, so we had to turn the heater off and it took a week for it to get fixed, you know? And I kept thinking, oh, this is going to like horrible. Like it was such a like anxiety filled. I, I, I even had the money no matter what to, to cover it. Right. And whereas where it's renting, right. Like you still have the, the, the trouble of, you know, mm. someone fixes it, but it's not on you and you can go somewhere else. <laughs> exactly. Please come um, and fix my heater. <laughs> yeah. So I think it would have been less extreme had we not bought our first house at that level of 350,000. But still Um, the point that you're making, I think is valuable is that most of the obligations are still there. mm -hmm. Yes. It didn't change that. I like to travel and that I felt tied down right now. If you don't feel those things and you're going to be in the same spot and you like security, Oh God, then that's probably like, like a blessing, Mm. you know? So, so, you know, it's just this certain type of personality. it, It doesn't fit as much. So maybe I'll summarize a few things that I took away from this story. I think the first thing is I want to, you know, one of the courses I taught at university and online is about, you know, how to give a great presentation. And you, uh, you talked about something that I talk about in the course. And for those people who aren't driving your car right now, I want, you know, who are just relaxing and sitting in a chair. I want you to uh, close your eyes and think about the words that I'm about to say and the connotations to those words like emergency, well, that's usually negative. And, uh, you know, love, that's usually positive. And I do this exercise where I go through a series of positive and negative words. And then I ask my students and I'll ask the listeners, how do you feel about the number 15? And usually I get a baffled look. And what I try to teach in that is that numbers convey no emotion and that's really what you were saying is that about numbers and you know i when i think about you're a writer and you're expressing emotion a lot of analysts in my world think that writing out you know this company had 20 percent year-on-year earnings improvement which brings a gross profit margin to 22.3 And I always told them, these are meaningless terms. (laughs) And that numbers 
evoke no emotion. So that's the first thing you really kind of reminded me when you were just, it's not related to your story, but it's the way you told your story. The second thing is that I didn't buy my first property until I was 40. And and I just never felt qualified to invest. You know, I felt like I had to learn more and Mm -hmm. I've always been an analyst and advising others, but for my own money, I've just been super cautious about it, particularly in the beginning. Although I invested in a couple startups, one that survived, one that didn't, and both of them have cost me a lot. But the point is, is that I was walking down the street near my apartment here in Bangkok, and I saw a building being built, a condo near the park. And I just thought, this is nice. And so I decided I had extra money. So I said, okay, I'll put money down and they'll build that. And and eventually I'll have this space and I'll move in here. And once the building was built, you know, I didn't really think it through. And the size of the apartment was half the size of my current, you know, the place that I was living at the time. So I was living at 300 square meter place and this was 140 square meters. So I didn't even like think about that. Of course, the, the unit wasn't built. So I didn't really have any feeling for the unit. So I just realized I'm never going to live in this thing. And then I said, okay, well, you know, no problem. A lot like when people buy stocks and they crash and they go, well, I'm a long-term investor. But I said, well, I'll, be a, I'll, I'll rent it out. And then I, I realized, holy crap, that's a lot of work. And then I just realized okay, that's a business. Renting out a unit ultimately is a business. And if you want to be good at it and you want to make money from it, you probably need three or five or 10 or whatever that number is. And I asked myself, is that the business that I want to be in? And the answer was no. So I sold it. So so did you ever live in it? No. So you bought your first home, you never lived in, and then you sold it. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, and, and good and for he, you for knowing yourself, though. You knew yourself well enough that you didn't even put yourself through the misery of trying to force it to work. Yeah, yeah. And I've lived in since that time, I've lived in the same apartment now for nearly 20 years. And wow. it's just so you're fun. renting right now. I'm renting. And All I, right. I, yeah. I, a 55 year old, it's like the 40 year old virgin, like the 55 year old <laughs> renter for my whole life. <laughs> And, oh, that's and, the best thing I've heard today. And there's nothing I regret about it because the other part is that, you know, you mentioned about index funds and you mentioned about investing. I mean, I'm an expert in investing. And the fact is, is that over the long term, I'm going to earn somewhere between, let's say, 5 and 10% when you consider my investment in stocks, plus a little bit of bonds, maybe a little bit of other asset classes. Mm-hmm. But when you average that out over time, and as you get older, of course, you're allocating to safer investments, so you're getting a lower return. You could say that my average return over, over my lifetime, also because I know how to keep costs down, it's probably going to be about 6%. Mm, yeah. And that's trouble-free, 6%. Mm-hmm. And you know, I have one business that I invested in with my best friend, and we both own it equally. And that's you know, a business now that's grown to have 100 employees here in Thailand, and you know, it's 25 years old, and it's a great business and it it is a way to create wealth but what i would say is that it's a lot of work Mm -hmm. whereas when i invest in the stock market whether it's in stocks or in an index particularly in stocks you know if i don't like how hard the management's working for me i just sell and go to another (laughs) management team and go all right you guys get to work and i think people you know they want to do startup and all that but the fact is is that you know there's a lot of opportunity nowadays and then the last point that i want to talk about related to this is that I have five nieces and I wrote my course and my, my book called How to Start Building Your Wealth Investing in the Stock Market 
for my five nieces. My sister passed away from cancer in 1998. Uh. She left three, you know, lovely daughters. And then my other sister has two daughters. So I have five nieces. I thought, what could I give them that could be valuable? Mm -hmm. So I really wrote out a book about how to start investing for someone who knows nothing about investing. And then I flew to America for the first daughters, my first niece's high school graduation. And I came with $3,000 of cash in my pocket. And I put it down on the table and I said, we're going to open an investment account at Vanguard. And I'm going to teach you how to, you know, invest. And I did that with each of them when they each graduated with $3,000. So they all started their life, you know, with that. But I'll just tell you one, one last part about that. That's an interesting part. So people, now that the, the oldest one is getting close to turning 30, people say, man, these guys must be set. And I always say, <laughs> I tell them a story about how after about five years, we got together and I asked them, you know, okay, everybody tell me how much is in your account. And they told me numbers. The first four of them told me the number. And it was like, yeah, not that much. It had just grown. And the, oh. the fifth one, the one who actually knew the least about finance and was the least interested, she had an amount that was more than double, if not triple the others. Wow. And everybody was like in shock. And we said, how did you do that? And she said, well, Uncle Andrew, I just followed what you said. You know, every month I took my babysitting money and whatever else money I had, and I just put it in there. Wow. And, and that's yeah. where I started the online course because I realized that I failed with my nieces. What I wanted to do is get them started and see the power of contributing at a young age and contributing as much as you can. So what I realized is that, you know, people require a nudge also, and they mm. require support and questions and getting their questions answered. So, but I want to mm. highlight this one point of my niece. She's got a good paying job. We're in the middle of a crisis. And, and then she calls my mom and myself and she says, you know, I just bought a house. I said, how are you doing that in the middle of a crisis? And, you know, the interest rate is so low. How can a young person not borrow money when the interest rate they're getting is like two or 3%. It's almost like free money. And when you consider some of the other tax incentives, my question that I had in my mind is like, are we just creating a whole new generation of people that are in debt? Or is this a good thing? You know, I mean, I just, I couldn't really figure it out. So those are the thoughts that I had as I was listening to what you said. Would you, you have anything you would add to those? No, that's interesting. No, I think just like, I think it, everything goes back to knowing, knowing yourself. At least that's my, that's my takeaway from my own journey. Like you knew yourself and you ignored yourself and listened to everyone else. Like I should have just realized how I work, you know, naturally and built a life around that. You know, I think the lifestyle design stuff, a lot of people think about, and I did financial coaching for a number of years and there's numbers. And then it's like, well, what do you want? Like, what do you want your life to look like? Let's say you hit all your goals and you had, you needed, you know, you want a million dollars. Great. You have a million dollars. Like, how do you actually want to live? You know, like that part is really, really important. And I think a lot of people are so focused on the numbers or goals and hitting it and they don't step back and like, like, what does your dream life look like? You know? So for me, like that shocked me into like trying to figure it out and, you know, again, accidentally stumbling across blogs. And then that started my career. And now like, I'm talking to you, right? 12 years later, like, you know, it's so so funny how life happens, you know, but Mm. yeah, so pay attention to how you are and then try and force yourself or try to like mold your your lifestyle, you know, Mm. how you want. So the last big question here, I want to preface it by imagining a young person or a young couple driving around a neighborhood, thinking about renting, coming across a really 
cool house, <laughs> talking to a real estate agent who's very good at getting them in very the house good and convincing them all of that stuff. Based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I would write down, if you don't have it already, what your dream life looks like, like where you're living, like what you do during the day. Are you working half time? Are you, you know, spending time with family? Are you traveling? Like whatever your dream life looks like, like I, you need to figure out what that is first. If the house falls into that, like, good, you have my blessings, like go for it. You know, but if you see your dream life doesn't include, you know, being attached to a home, whether it's emotionally, whether it's, you know, the, the money's, you know, stresses you out. I think that's, that's going to be like the big, at least for me. And again, I'm more emotional maybe than the average person, but I think that's, you know, an important thing to figure out how it fits in with, with your goals, especially the, you know, the spur of the moment thing, right? Like in your story, my story is all like, kind of like on a whim, you know, which usually doesn't end well. <laughs> it could have ended well, could have been right. But I think knowing what you want out of life, I mean, and I already said it, but I, I feel like it's just so important. And also to know that you can craft your life, right? Like I read a, a something, an article today that was talking about, there's no, there's no law that says when you have to retire. There's like no rules, right? Like there's some stuff about, you know, when you're 65, you can do this and that. And that's why you see the fire movement, right? The early retirement stuff. Like mm. when you figure out there's no rules and you're like, yeah, I don't want, let's say you don't want to work for the rest of your life. Like maybe that's your dream right? Like, great. Like now go backwards. Like, how can you make that happen? Because you can make that happen. It might be hard. It might take you longer than the average person, but like all this stuff is possible that sometimes we think is not possible. And going back to the online stuff, there's someone out there, you know, doing it or figuring it out that you can just copy them or or start reading or reaching out to them. So yeah, that's, that's my, uh, convoluted answer there. Fantastic. And, uh, what would be the best if for those people that want to follow you, Where's the best place for them to go? You can see, uh, read about me and um, what I'm up to in projects and ways to reach out at jmoney.biz, just the letter jmoney.biz. And then if you love talking about money, thinking about money, and you like the personal aspect, check out my new project, allstarmoney.com. In a nutshell, like I, I scan, I think we're tracking about 1500 personal finance blogs all around the world. And I scan every day, every single article that someone publishes, which comes out to about 150 a day. And then I pick my three favorite articles and I post them up online. So every day you can kind of get a curation of what I think is, is good content covering debt, you know, early retirement, investing, everything, right? Some people you'll love, some people you'll hate, but that that's kind of a really easy way to see what the personal finance blogging community is. And then the ones that you relate to, you can start reading and, and you'll probably find one or two a week that, you know, really resonates with you. That's awesome. And I just typed it in and I recommend to everybody listening, type in all-star money and basically.com and you'll get there and you'll find this curated list. And here's one of the articles I see how frugal are you? A check, a checklist. <laughs> a printable. You can print it out and check off the ones. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Boy, this is valuable. I mean, I've, I've never seen that. So really appreciate that. That's awesome. Fantastic. All right. Last question. What's your Go number one goal for the next 12 months? So I'm going to revert back to lifestyle. Before I started this new project, All Star Money, I had, I was at one point, I had my blog. That was my full-time job. Then I thought, oh, great, let's start a whole bunch of blogs and let's try and make more money and more, you know, try and be popular and build an empire. So at one point I owned 12 blogs, all making money. And then I had kids and I said, well, let's start. I'm starting to work too much. 
I started working 80 hours a week. So all the people think, oh, blogging, you know, it's a, it's a dream lifestyle. It's so easy. It still work. And so the last five years I've been scaling back time. I stopped working nights, stopped working weekends. And I went down and I sold off every single thing. Budgets are sexy, which is my baby, Rockstar Finance. I sold everything last year. I had I owned nothing online. And the Motley Fool, you know, contracted me to start another project. And I said, oh, but now I'm kind of, you know, retired-ish kind of. But I love to, you know, work on projects. And so I started this one and we've all we've only launched for about a month now. Mm. The point of all this is that I went from doing nothing all day for six months to now working about 12 hours a day again. And I realized this is not my dream lifestyle. I love the project, but working 12 hours a day. So my goal in the next 12 months is to go back. My perfect is wake up at five, everyone's sleeping, do some work for five, six hours at lunchtime, call it quits, and then have the second half of the day for me. Mm. Uh, I have to go back to finagling how how to do that with a project. Fantastic. (laughs) <laughs> All right, <laughs> listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, to reduce risk in your life. That's the whole point of this podcast. So go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now and download the risk reduction checklist and see how you measure up. As we conclude, Mr. Money, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? (laughs) I love it. No, just stay true to yourself and go check out personal finance blogs and see if anything resonates with you. Beautiful, beautiful. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying I'll see you on the upside.